is Andrew Brewer, your host of the Northwest Area Health Education Center's podcast titled Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina, where we discuss things related to healthcare professionals in our 17-county region and beyond. Today, I have my first ever fourth-time appearing guest, Dr. Joseph Skelton, um, who is uh, an MD and uh, professor of pediatrics uh, at Brenner Fit. Um, and all kinds of other things, and we're going to discuss things that have been going on since we last talked. Um, first of all, congratulations on your medicine mentoring award that you got last year. And well, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm really hoping this will be like Saturday Night Live, and when I do the fifth one, that I get a smoking jacket. <laughs> I, get, I get accepted into the exclusive club then, and I guess it'll be just a club of me and you. So That's that's right. That's right. Well, I, I'm glad to have you back on. I appreciate your time spending the day. So what, what, what's been going on over the last, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 months since we spoke last? Yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've fallen a little bit of a weird uh, niche there because I'm, you know, I'm a physician, um, but also am mainly uh but, but also do a lot of research and have actually done a lot of community work. So it's, it's, it's been a little bit of whiplash because, um, you know, clinical has always been going along somewhat. I mainly work in the clinics now. And so, um, you know, we did a huge transition trying to equip us more in working with telemedicine and then it started to push back to in-person. And luckily right now with, um, with us maybe moving a little bit, at least temporarily back into more of the telemed, at least that whole sort of process is set up. Um, with that. So it's been a little bit of a whiplash going back and forth with that. Research is kind of weird because, you know, research is still supposed to go forward, much like clinics are, but, you know, a lot of research involves human interaction. And so, again, we were kind of moving stuff to, to virtual and then it was back to more in person. So I, I guess I'm saying I got a little bit of a sore neck of sort of going back and forth, but um, I'm, I, I can't complain, you know, compared to, you know, what all my colleagues are going through and just the exhaustion with COVID and things like that, but, but sort of, you know, on the personal level overall doing well, still got several different research projects going, I think with us preparing to integrate more into atrium health of what that means. And so we started a relationship with the, um, our, our collaborators, our partners down in Charlotte that work with obesity down there. So it's, uh, it's not stopped despite, uh, everything kind of going back and forth is still kind of plowing forward. Well, how how has all this affected the the teaching kitchen? I know that was a lively place before the pandemic, and going to the Y and seeing uh, cooking demonstrations and and all the workshops you were doing. Um, how has that uh, been affected? Again, a little bit of whiplash. So we you know we shut down for a long period of time, shifted a lot of those efforts over to doing more focus on um, food insecurity. Um, we it really kind of allowed us to real time experiment, not really experiment, but you know giving away uh, sort of staple grocery items just to alleviate some of the food costs for folks, um, things that were shelf stable so we could buy in bulk and store it there and give it away as needed. Um, you know, we'd have weeks it was incredibly needed and weeks that people seemed to be doing okay. I think it was just so hectic. Experiment some with giving away groceries that people would then cook a specific recipe. That was kind of fun. We found some people loved it and some people have no interest. And so we, we have adapted a lot of that to sort of give people choices. Do they need staple items, even to the point of giving food cards and things like that? Started, spent the summer getting the kitchen up and ready, putting, um, you know, how are we going to do socially distanced classes when oftentimes you're cooking there as a group or with other people? So we launched our, uh, relaunched our, I'd say, uh, relaunched the kitchen again this past fall um, and with, you know, lower numbers. Um, 
given that a lot of the success of our teaching kitchen was people cooking a recipe and then being able to eat it. That was always um, a huge thing. So we adjusted, but also knowing that people take off their masks to then eat. Um, we would still have people, less people. We put up some dividers there. They would still cook. And then we actually packed up and much like a lot of people in these DoorDash times, they would take home the meals with them to eat. So they still had the experience of eating what they cook. Um, for me personally, one of the biggest joys I have is our doctors in the kitchen class that we partnered for years um, with Northwest AHEC on. Um, and that was our culinary medicine that we put in with the medical students. Um, that was a big one for us because not only was it fun, students loved going through the five class series, but also that fed into a lot of our volunteer programs. So we actually got to launch that back um, again this fall. So that's been well. We're taking a little bit of pause in classes just for the month of January. I think the hope is as rapid as the Omicron variant went up, expected um, in two to three weeks that that's going to also crash back down. So that's we're going to take a little bit of pause in the classes in January, but hopefully this will just be a pause. Um, and we can continue doing the classes. So start to get the classes going back up again and just take a little bit of a breather right now. Well, how has that been received um, integrating, you know, hands-on nutritional kinds of things into the, the medical curriculum? It's going well. The The students this year, and we've got a couple of the second year, a couple of the first years, they're demanding more and more of it. And so, you know, we've expanded the capacity a little bit. Um, now we're going to have almost 40 students go through it this year, um, which is getting to be a third to a fourth of the medical school class. Um, you know, unfortunately, we just couldn't. We just it's really sort of my time limitations on being able to do it just because it's sort of a passion project for me. But we definitely see the need of it. And actually, we published um, a paper last year with one of the students, Sam Sujimoto. And we know that students, I think I saw today, 71% of medical students do not get the recommended amount of nutrition education or medical school. So we, we know that's needed. And so what we then know is a lot of graduating medical students, a good part of the nutrition knowledge that they have, they either come in with or are self-taught. And so we had actually published this paper in the American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine where we queried first-year medical students about their background in nutrition. And it was, you know, 20% had had a nutrition class. Most of the nutrition information is self-taught. Most of their cooking lessons come from either their parents or maybe they did a a cooking thing online, but definitely I think there's a big need to to continue to expand that with the medical school and then definitely getting some interest from the medical school here. Good. Now, with, with the expansion into Charlotte um, with the medical school, is there going to be any kind of nutrition or, or uh, you know, specific like teaching kitchens uh, going in there? <laughs> it's all, honestly, listeners, we did not talk about this ahead of time, but he's totally <laughs> prepping me on all these things. I guess you kind of know me well. <laughs> Yeah, so um, the Sanger, which is the cardiovascular program within Atrium, they've actually built a teaching kitchen a little north of Charlotte. And we've had initial discussions with them. Again, COVID kind of interrupted that. And it's been very valuable because as you've witnessed and experienced and have done there, there's a lot that goes into running these kitchens. And so we were able to provide some initial guidance to them, but definitely going to, to jump back on that. Have already been in talk. Actually, we've had some email conversations with the school system down there with the YMCA, which is a different YMCA that's up here. And so I think they're in, and then even in the inter between areas between us and Charlotte, um, I think there's a lot of interest in doing some stuff. So now, I mean, we learned that when we went to the um, Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives together, most teaching kitchens in the country are, are and, and the, the, this is a valuable thing, but most of them are using um, collapsible tables and, and hot pads or, you know, hot plates. So what we have is really something to be envied, and actually we hope to have that 
even more. And then especially with the use, the YMCA, we were just getting ready to talk with them before COVID. They had members of their staff coming in to teach classes um, with different populations. So I think there's just, I think there's a lot to this. And I think during COVID, um, unfortunately put a pause in, but I think there, there are some discussions. We're just not there yet. Um, but that's one thing we're excited about that. Hopefully the med students love it so much here. Can we get the same thing going down there? Good, good. Now you mentioned the healthy kitchens, healthy lives, which, you know, dates goes back to the winter of, well, 2017 is when we went, but I remember sitting down at a restaurant, the crew of us who were going to do a little brief, uh, and, and I remember sp specifically, I'm going to tie two subjects in here. I remember uh, going around the table just uh, talking about different topics and questions. And I mentioned food insecurity and I got these looks like, what are you even talking about? And now it's it's become kind of a forefront thing. And I'm going to set this up by saying I, I got off a call earlier, uh, a planning meeting for some modules, teaching modules that we're doing um, for health coaching and behavioral change. and. What I did not realize was, uh, and it's for the community health care workers, which is a growing uh, arm of uh, clinical practice, I guess, and community outreach. Um, but what I didn't realize was just how much of their current tasks tasks are coordinating referrals to basic needs res resources. And I mean, like paying rent, paying heat getting food, uh, transportation. So, you know, it's hard to think about how someone's going to change their behavior to healthier, you know, healthy change when their basic needs aren't even being met. So, which sort of woke me up again to food insecurity. Um, so it's timely that we're talking, um, you know, talk a little bit about that and just what, what have you noticed? What are the issues? I mean, how, how much of a issue is it in, in our communities here in Northwest area, North Carolina? Yeah. Well, I mean, every year, and again, you, it's not like you read my mind a little bit on this, but basically what you just described is, um, you know, social determinants of health. And it's something that we've known about for a long time. It's been there being able to lump it under that, that qualifications of social determinants of health and the greater recognition of, of the, not only on the impact of the health, but how our traditional medical approach is not enough to address those core, core issues. I, I think, for me, and I think for a lot of the other folks around here, it sort of started out on food, with food insecurity because there were a few, and again, it depends on, you know, it's different methodologies and stuff like that, but several different reports that come out that the greater triad region was, you know, top 10 in food insecurity. And, you know, one year Greensboro was number two and Winsalem for children's number one. You know, it, it, it kind of varies. The main message is we're not doing very well with that specifically in this triad area, much less some other areas you think about being even more rural, um, that that even though you might be living in a farming area with mono agriculture, they're not getting exposure to a lot of the things that are being grown there. So it was on our radar for several years now uh, uh, with the levels of food insecurity and the impact that would have on health. And then that's continuing on to the other things that you just named, safe housing, educational systems, you know, environmental um, pollution, uh, transportation, access to care and stuff like that. So. I think North Carolina has actually led pretty well um, due to a lot of the a lot of the state leaders and and getting recognition that and that's part of the latest uh, med, uh, the Medicaid transformation that they're looking at. Like, can we start tapping into that more as a healthcare system 
by linking up with community organizations, making a referral, providing resources, things like that, that, um, you know, so the, the classic story that I've always heard is, you know, if patients in the hospital, you finally get them well enough, they can go home, but they might be elderly and they live alone. They might not have transportation and you're sending them to a home that doesn't have food in it. And they may not have an ability to get food for 48 to 72 hours. And so, you know, one of the things of that is partnering with either with some local organizations or with their own institution to be able to send them home with food. So there's a, a, a couple wonderful projects. Um, I don't want to go into too great detail because they're a research project, they're they're new and starting, but you know, can we partner with some of the wonderful resources that we have here? Second Harvest Food Bank has been doing this forever. So that's one thing that we have to sort of check our ego and say, we don't need to do this on our own. Why not go to people that have been doing this all along, like Second Harvest Food Bank? You know, Second Harvest Food Bank spawned the Providence Community Kitchen, which you're probably familiar with, which is a job training program teaching people how to work in kitchens. Well, the other thing they do so wonderfully, they do wonderful catering, um, which is part of sort of the learning experience out there. Um, Jeff Bacon himself, who's sort of the leader of that program, actually has a background in nutrition. And so, you know, we can even go to them and say, hey, we need a, I'm just going to sort of make this up, we need a low saturated fat meal that's going to meet the caloric requirements for an adult you know, for a 25 hour period, you know, can get very specific at some of the nutritional requirements and then can even get to the point of even delivering that. And so having some creative partnerships in this community, which kind of goes to another area of research that I'm involved with here, our CTSI, which is our big nationally funded clinical and translational science institute. Um, we have the program in community engaged research, and that's um, uh, some of your colleagues have been very involved with that in the past. And so that's us keeping these relationships going in the community so we can find ways that we can work together to improve health. So big, long-winded story to say, unfortunately, with a lot of the poverty levels in our town, this is a significant issue, but it's on the radar. Now we need to have the will, the means, and the determination to do something about it. Yeah, well, it's a lot there. Um, uh, how, in sort of related terms, I guess, uh, how has, you know, the Brenner Fit and the teaching kitchens and the culinary medicine and all those programs kind of was going, uh, felt like it was, there was a top down to get, uh, you know, physicians, clinical people to understand better nutrition and cooking techniques and then bottom up from the community itself and, and families in, in the families in training for childhood obesity and that kind of stuff. Uh, how, how has, all this affected or impacted uh, clinicians um, in the last couple of years of the pandemic? And have you noticed any uh, areas of concern for, you know, clinician uh, nutrition and things like that? Well, and I, I think everything that you're going to see in the general public, you're going to see with healthcare providers right now. And that's just, it's, you know, with COVID and, the, and there's several factors that were coming very well with now with COVID. So one is just the having been at home, you know, less opportunities to go out and do stuff, whether it was working from home, um, remote schooling, uh, less activities just to go to on weeknights or weekends and things like that. And so you're just home more and the more you're home and inside, um, especially during cold weather times like now, you, you're moving less, you're exposed to the things um, uh, that, that, may not necessarily be a good thing, such, such as food. So one thing I noticed with my own kids, I noticed with myself, and now some of the research is starting to say is one of the nutritional impacts um, with COVID and at-home school and then even working from home um, is kind of lunch. You know, so normally when I go into work, I would pack a lunch and, it, you know, it's got to be something that's kind of small. 
And as you know, one of the core tenets of eating healthy is planning ahead. So to pack a lunch, I have to plan. I'm going to have everything I need for that lunch. It's got to be something that's either I'm going to put in my insulated lunchbox or I have an access to refrigerator, or is it going to be something that I need to eat cold? I'm going to reheat. Main point is that I'm planning around it. Um, during COVID, I don't think about that because I'm home. So I can go downstairs and find something that's here. And normally, you know, it's pretty easy when I'm planning ahead to plan a balanced meal. If I'm not planning and I'm going to eat what's here, I'm going to be more focused on eating leftovers, which is going to mean I probably didn't think ahead to make sure I kind of have a balanced meal that I can have a fruit and vegetable. I just went downstairs right now and my nephew's down there cutting up a steak and heating it up. And now I've smelled it. Now I want to go down there and have steak. So it all sort of comes around to exposure and setting us up that we're not planning ahead on a lot of our nutrition. We're not physically active. And the final thing I'd add with that is we're, we're at home more. It, it's taken us off our game when it comes to nutrition. And then the final thing is just sort of the stress. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that's a big increasing interest, especially in my own practice. I'm seeing a spike in type two diabetes in kids. I've diagnosed type two diabetes more in the past two years than I had in the previous 15. And wow. don't think it's, I, I mean, obviously changing nutrition, change physical activity has a lot to do with that. I also think it's related to stress. And for a lot of my patients, if they're coming from under-resourced neighborhoods, there's additional financial stressors, lost jobs, lost wages, things like that. I mean, it's, you know, that, that stress is multifactorial for a lot of people. And so um, I think it's not only affecting our patients, I think it's affecting our physicians. And if you're not someone like me, you're working from home a couple of days a week, then you're probably a frontline worker and it's, it's gotten even worse. And, you know, my wife has seen that she is a critical care pharmacist here at Wake Forest Baptist and, you know, people get infected with COVID having to cover shifts, things like that. It really starts to wear on people. So again, very long winded answer to a simple question. Well, I'm, I'm just, you know, letting that marinate that you've diagnosed more type two diabetes in the last two years than the previous 15. That is, that is just something. Um, and it's yeah. concerning. So along those lines and, and I'm going to try to get a question out of this. Um, you know, you, you guys were at, were, uh, you know, experimenting with telemedicine before all this happened and, and had some successes and some failures with it as well. And, and then now, you know, of course, we're kind of forced into it. Um, how has uh, telemedicine affected your ability to uh, meet with and have discussions with and do diagnoses and, and treat patients and also uh, how much bandwidth, you know, just time and energy do you have and how has that changed for uh, coaching in nutrition and trying to get that message to your patients and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think for us in Brennerfit, we transitioned to telemed quite well. And it's mainly because we had partnered with you guys 13, 14 years ago, where we set up those old polycom monitors at sort of outside practices and things like that. So we had already gone through, um, even though it was a much different system back then, and we weren't doing it within people's homes, they were actually coming to an outlying center to do it. But we were able to work through, you know, always having a backup plan for trouble with electronics, um, you know, because even though people are now, they can do it on their phone, they can do it in their home, stuff always comes up. And so we had always known that you have to have backup plans to do that. So we were very well equipped with that. We were already well equipped with being able to communicate with people remotely. 
of, you know, anywhere from um, securely emailing care plans and information and sharing web links and stuff like that. So we transitioned very easily because of that experience, but then it became even better because it was working with families that didn't have to travel to a clinic where they still had to wait and get checked in. They could do it from their own homes and find locations like that. So it, we found it actually very valuable. Um, it doesn't work for everyone. Some people just have trouble making that connection virtually and feeling comfortable with it. Um, you know, that's one thing that we always sort of prep people is when you're setting up to do it, go find a private space. You don't really think about that until suddenly you're having a very confidential conversation and there might be other people in your house or apartment or something like that. So, you know, we, we were already very set up to, to do that, but we found it very valuable to sort of quote, be in people's homes. Um, we've had people cook recipes for us on there. You know, they've been able to sort of show us things, especially when it came to things around cooking. We found that to be very valuable. Um, we started doing virtual cooking classes. Um, Again, it wasn't for everyone, but those that did them loved them. We were finding that like 90% of people that would do one class would sign up for the second class. So for a lot of people, that was very helpful. It was also very comfortable because then they could do it in their own home, not necessarily having to travel to a teaching kitchen and things like that. Um, then I think what, and, and actually I talk with a lot of people nationally in my field that, um, again, we thought, you know, the first a year ago, we're like, telemedicine is the answer. This is going to revolutionize everything when was talking about that in healthcare. Well, then what we found is life, I don't say it was slowly returning to normal, but, you know, you know, we were adjusting, like, we're going to have to live with this. People are starting to go back to work. And then we started seeing what we would see normally was, um, you know, they, they weren't at home to participate in a virtual visit you know they might have had to be at work and have to go out in their car and it wasn't this it wasn't as comfortable as being in their own home and so i feel like right now we're trying to figure out what needs to be in person what needs to be virtual what can be done where so i think i think it's definitely a very dynamic time right now was originally thought this was the future of healthcare and i still think there's a major role for telemedicine within that but it, it's still dynamic. It's still kind of a unsteady floor that we're standing on with that. And it's, you know, every time I think that we're about to hit a equilibrium point, another variant comes out and things change and stuff like that. So it, it's continued to be dynamic. I think we're still trying to figure out what's going to be the best role for that. I think in, in a lot of your world and sort of the tech world is, you know, how can we monitor behaviors remotely? So how can I, it's great to be able to meet with people within their own home to talk about health behaviors, but how can we continue to be a resource and, and support to those families using the same technology with that? And so, you know, M Health and the rise of that, we still don't have the answer. Like I said, it's still very dynamic trying to figure out what's going to be the best approach. What, what has changed um, in your, uh, you know, career as far as the language and the approach to uh, trying to in, uh, evoke change talk and, and trying to motivate people or have people motivate themselves into behavior change in your, in, in your typical visit, in your typical uh, interaction with a patient? Yeah, that's that's a because that again is also a, a big point of changing right now. You know, one thing that we've realized over the past five to ten years, especially over the past five years, is um, patients who struggle with weight issues, specifically in my world, have um, I don't say they found their voice, but they're being heard a little bit more because it used to be, and it's around the issues of weight bias. You know, 
a lot of different illnesses have support groups, have advocacy groups that can get their voice heard, can advocate for change, can can make pitches for more funding. And um, groups like the Obesity Action Coalition have really arisen in, um, in the past five years to say, hey, you know, we we need reimbursement for obesity services. We need better medications. We need more access to bariatric surgery and things like that. So I feel like this combination of recognizing the bias that we have, not only in healthcare, but in the world against people of larger bodies, as well as being able to advocate for more resources and support. It's it's shifting a lot from obesity treatment to obesity care. Um, you know, part of that is being able to meet people more where they are um, versus saying, here's the exact way. It's personalized. I, again, that's a big catchphrase, I think, in healthcare right now is the idea of personalized approaches. Um, you know, for, for some people, you eliminate sugar sweetened beverages, you increase their physical activity a little bit, you see great changes in weight. Others, you do that, you don't see that much change in weight. Everyone's going to be a little bit different of the things that they um, need to change, things they need to do, how it's affecting their body. Um, you know, I, I have kids that are, you know, have a lot of extra weight on their bodies and don't develop diabetes. And I have kids that do develop diabetes. And what's the difference? What are the genetic differences with that? So, um, that that is also changing a lot. I think it's getting it's moving way beyond. Um, so calories in, calories out is now out because we know it's just not that simple. Um, you know the the approaches are going to be very individualized. We're kind of done with these wars on what's the best nutritional plan. What's the best nutritional plan is what works for you and that you can follow long term and you can be a happy human doing it. Um, mm -hmm. So. That I think there's greater acceptance of that. Um, we still have to fight a lot of the wellness industry out there. There's a there's a great podcast called Maintenance Phase um, that they 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 take on the wellness industry and sort of bust myths and quacks and stuff like that. I love sort of listening to that. And I, th I think overall we're sort of done, but there's always going to be a second wave of those um, coming along with that. Well, I, I'm I'm enrolled in a health coaching health and wellness coaching certification program and and one of the things it's taught me um is to not be prescriptive you know everyone has their idea of what diet works for them and they want to go evangelize that to everybody and yep. what i've learned uh is that uh, you know, people, like you said, meet people where they are. And so to listen and try to find a, a place, an opening, uh, that you can find and help them, uh, say things out loud that maybe they've never said before, you know, like, oh, I really need to stop doing what drinking soda or mm -hmm. drinking 12 a day or whatever it is. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, the the challenge is and i'm relating this back to the community health worker scenario where the primary care provider refers the community health worker to the client to say hey can you go work with them on needs and 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 try to integrate some health coaching and and help because we know that just prescribing hey you need to move more and eat less uh you know they know that already you know it's just trying to find that one thing that can start the cascade of momentum of goal achievement. And I think that, you know, it's, 
there's a famous video of, of the woman with the nail in their head and it's not about the nail, you know, it's, it's, it's about her feelings about the nail. So yes, you could just reach and pull it out, but there's more to it. Right. Um, so, so there's, you know, I know obesity is a very complex, uh, condition or disease or, 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 uh, I'll just leave it that. And, and so it can be environmental, it can be social, it can be all these things. And I guess what I'm getting at is, is how how effective can a clinician be in helping a patient realize that without just you know here's here's your sheets that printed off here's your numbers and here's what we recommend but you know good luck yeah the and that's that kind of goes back to sort of old attitudes towards white bias and the frustration that physicians would feel and trying to elicit change and change not happening and blaming the patient. And I think most of us recognize now, obviously, you know, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Um, I'd say one of the hardest things, and you obviously you're very familiar with motivational interviewing and, and things like that. I think that's probably one of the hardest things for us as physicians to accept is sometimes patients don't want to change. The, their decision not to change is their decision. And me as a physician, I need to respect that and still be their physician and still provide that care. Mm-hmm. And it can be hard because you 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 feel like part of that care is them improving health behaviors, improving weight and stuff like that. And so I think where a lot of us have headed now is, um, you know, still providing that care and waiting for either not waiting, but when the opportunity arises or it's the right time that they still have that trust in you because you did not become frustrated with them due to lack of change in the past or, you know, fussed at them is sort of the classic thing that we always hear about. You're still their care provider and you need to keep providing that care um, and you need to provide it on the terms that they want to provide it. And also what you mentioned is also recognizing there are a lot of things out of that patient's control. It's, you know, um, what I always tell people is, you know, the world changed. We did not. Um, you know, some of us, you know, we all know people that no matter what they eat, they don't seem to gain a pound. You know, there's, there's elements of that. There's a lot of genetics to obesity and the comorbidities and stuff like that. And, and increasing recognition that so many of these things are environmental or genetic contributors and not blaming the patient for that and and taking the blame for any of that out of the equation and just being there for them. Um, and, and when they want that help, you know, and being able to provide the help. And part of that is training and part of that is getting to resources that can provide that help. And that's why we need so many more health coaches because oftentimes we know that's one of the best things that are gonna help is having people that they trust that provide support. And I never fully understood what that support meant until I started working with social workers and, and seeing that sometimes, it, well, and you have teenagers, um, you know, the first thing that we tell people with teenagers is, when your teenager confides in you or talks with you or talks to you about a problem, as a parent, what do you want to do? Fix it. You want to fix the problem. And the first thing with teenagers, first rule of teenagers is you can't fix their problems. The number one thing you need to do there is to listen, express understanding, um, you know, validate their feelings. And that actually, that applies to any age kid. You know, if they're feeling something or the word, and again, I'm not, believe me, I'm not perfect on any of this. You know, the what you don't want to say is, oh, well, that's silly. Oh, just relax. Don't worry about that. You shouldn't feel that way. That invalidates their feelings and it it can be crushing. Um, but, you know, validate their feelings. Listen via support. Ask how I can help. 
that type of thing. Yeah, empathy, affirmation, and strength. Focus on strengths and what they do have control over. Um, yes. you know, the agency and all that. That's that's been my awakening in this whole coaching thing. Is my personal story, which I have to throw in, is. Uh, you know, I've lost 30 pounds in the last year and, uh, I was always, I'm always, I've always been active and always ate healthy and a friend see me now and are like, well, what are you doing to get so fit? And I'm like, well, it's what I'm not doing really. And so I, you know, it's been a year now I haven't had a drink and of alcohol and, and, uh, you know, the looks on people's faces when I tell them that they're like, that's not even in the realm of possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's like, it was just, it was the thing I needed to eliminate to achieve my optimal health. And, and I, I bite my tongue and I don't prophesize and, and, and evangelize, but, uh, it's just interesting that, 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 that there are those things in which people will not absolutely will not change. I'm sure it's in tobacco cessation. I'm sure it's in, you know, in, in a lot of excesses that we do, but. Yeah. And, and part of that is, you know, then what you can prophesize on is being supportive to people who want to change, not judging, you know, being, being an ear and listen. And then that's hard. It's hard for any of us to, to hear problems, and not need to act, but oftentimes what you just need to do is just to be there. And that's, that's what a, a person who specializes in palliative care told me one time is, you know, so many times I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but oftentimes that's what I'm supposed to do is just be there. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, in, in our health coaching course, one of the case studies, this woman comes in and she's large, uh, large bodied and, um, you know, immediately, you know, I mean, everyone always talks about like, well, what do you want to change? And they're like, well, I know I need to eat better. And I know I need to exercise more. But what it turned, you know, through the coaching conversations, what was revealed is that she had a toxic relationship with someone and her goal was not to eat better and exercise more, was to cut this person out of their life <laughs> and that was the first step that they needed to do to get to a place where they needed to make you know the changes that they knew you know they've you know everyone probably wants to be healthier hopefully and and so it's just it's just uncovering and evoking that understanding of what is the real starting point what's the low-hanging fruit or what's the most important thing environmentally or socially that you could you, you could affect that would get you on that path to to healthy change yeah that it, this is a less uh esoteric <laughs> spiritual version of that but um but no it's important that's a, a very common thing that we do and, and you've probably heard us talk a little bit about this um ellen satter division responsibility approach to non-restrictive non-pressuring feeding with kids and, and so what that comes down to when it comes down to what what parents often say what can i do and what parents usually start identifying is the what. What what do I need to feed our kids? What do I need to cook? What do I need to do that? And oftentimes, you know, parents are smart. Parents know what they should be doing, but it's hard to do that what. And so what we say is, tell you what, let's take a break from that. Because oftentimes what that can lead to is usually some strife within the family of, you know, the, the one night mom or dad decides that they're going to cook something healthy and balanced, and then all they hear is grief from their kids. Um, I love cooking chicken and my kids just revolted one night saying, dad, we're so sick of chicken. So I won't cook chicken for a month. And then the one night I cook it, that's all I hear. And I'm like, I'm like, anyway, 
you know, it, it can cause the strife within the home with that. Um, I mean, yeah, for a recipe your kids grump at you about. Oh yeah, for me, we were on the burrito taco kick for like months because <laughs> it's just, hey, I got ground beef. We're gonna stir fry it up and put it in the burrito wrap, and then if supper's ready. So yeah, another, you know, my personal story about just my behavior change over another personal story over the pandemic was I stopped cooking. I mean, I didn't have to make breakfast for my kids and they made their own lunches and, and, you know, we moved into a new, uh, a new house uh, last year. And that's only then did I really pick back up cooking and the enjoyment of it. And it was, it was just went by the wayside when working from home, I'm just going to grab a little snack. I mean, we made bread and cookies and stuff like that, but cooking meals just went out the window. And you, you mentioned that too, is like lunch has disappeared. There's no set time. So I've been trying to get back into some sort of routine and, and yeah. eat, eat as a family and, and, and prepare food together and stuff like that. So yeah, And you hit, that's the main thing we tell families is don't worry about the what you're cooking or what you're preparing or what you're feeding your kids. You're feeding your kids. They're not starving. Start with that. Let's focus on, I call it the how. And the how is the when and the where is when are we eating? And you know what we need to eat and it's different for every family. So me saying that, you know, three meals a day and an after school snack, that, that may not work for everyone. But for us, it was, and for the majority of people is you need breakfast, lunch, maybe an after school snack and dinner. And let's eat at those times. Because if you don't eat at a relatively regular schedule or you sort of have that habit within your family, What's going to happen? They're going to come in. They're going to see that I'm cooking asparagus and chicken again at six. They're going to say, I'm hungry. I'm hungry now. And they're going to get a snack. Well, guess who's not going to be hungry at dinner? And then guess who's going to be hungry again later? So not only did they not eat the food I prepared, they were eating some more readily made snack food and they were not eating on schedule. But if the general rule in the families, we eat breakfast, lunch, after school snack and dinner. And between that, you don't graze. You know, you you eat at these meal times. Focus on getting that in place because then you get your kids regimented that they will come into a meal they've not eaten since their last meal. They're kind of hungry, and they're used to having to make do with what you're serving them. Um, versus, I don't like this, and you go making them a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And so we tend to say, hey, let's focus on some of the more sort of parenting stuff around this. You get a lot of those habits. You focus on the when and the where. We're eating three square meals a day, maybe an after-school snack. Um, we're going to eat at the table, TV off, no distractions, no electronics. Once you get that set up, first of all, you're immediately going to see some improvements in your health habits. And second of all, you have those kids coming ahead to coming to a meal hungry. You planned ahead like we talked about. They're going to make do with that food. You can then start making changes in what you're actually serving them. So we take the pressure off of the what, because we all know we need to eat healthier and we all struggle with that. Let's focus on the how. Let's focus on the when and where. Let's focus on not pressuring kids to eat, get them used to coming to a meal and making do with the food that's being served to them. Then you can start making some substantial changes. And part of that is also what we talked about, what we started out with. Part of that is getting a few cooking skills, even if it's just not cooking, even if it's just food preparation skills. You know, let me get a rotisserie chicken and a bag salad from the grocery store and let's do that. You know, we oftentimes say if you want to practice, if you're still getting a lot of takeout, this is sort of meeting people where they are, get takeout, come home, sit at the table, eat as a family. Mm -hmm. One reason a lot of us as parents like to eat out, first of all, it's good. We don't have to cook it or clean up is 
there's no fighting over food and the kids can get whatever they enjoy. So oftentimes what I'll say is tell you what, start getting takeout, bring it back home, eat together as family, do that for a week. Then the second week, don't take orders, just order one meal, like order family style from a place, you know, from a, from a restaurant, come home and serve it. They're used to eating at the table. There'll be some griping because they didn't get to order their food, but do that for a couple of weeks until they're used to it. And then you can talk about getting a rotisserie chicken and a bag salad mix and doing that. So just, baby steps to do that yeah yeah yeah, good point um yeah we we know that telling people what to do is not going to work so that i like that approach just kind of gradually introduce new things and by the way i love asparagus so you can cook that Uh, anytime (laughs) are you are you an excreter or a not excreter i am i'm definitely i think most of us are so (laughs) and you you know they've actually found the gene that's linked to love of uh dislike of cilantro there's some reason i heard that yeah yeah some that for some people cilantro tastes like um tastes like soap and yeah it's actually genetic contributor my my stepdaughter could not do cilantro yeah and see, I don't, that, having learned that i don't push that as much i don't think picky. <laughs> that's just not something that they really like so yeah that's that's great well what gives you hope for the future dr skelton oh it's kind of a kind of an odd time to, to sort of say that but um i i'm gonna since i don't have a pat answer to that i have I've not spent a lot of time dwelling on that given political climates and giving our uh, viral climate out there right now um I think for me, having in you, you, I know you've had this too, is, you know, having a kid away from home, I've got a kid in college. Um, you know, I lost a parent a couple of years ago. I think a lot of us, as we get older, we tend to focus more on the family. Um, I've got a nephew that's living here um, in town now, and he um, comes to see us a lot. And so, and, and that's actually bleeding over in a lot of the work that we're doing. We know what the work we do with childhood obesity family is one of the most important things that we're going to do. And we have started a research center here now called the Center for Prevention Science and Child and Family Health. And what we're wanting to do with that is call that attention more to other areas of health, not just lifestyle behavior. So again, unfortunately, something I've gone through over the past 10 years is having a parent, an elderly parent, another town that's had some health problems. And, you know, family dynamics come into play with that, you know, of being able to communicate with my siblings and communicate with my my mom's doctor or my father-in-law's doctor and and how do you share information you know i always sort of i made this joke um you know when my dad first became sick my mom would go to the doctor with him and then i would call and say okay what the doctor say and she you know he's from knoxville tennessee and his aunt went to elementary school with my cousin i'm like no mom what what did he say about that you know what did he say about his health it's great that you know you found something in common with this doctor um and so i think there's some family aspects too with that as you know then how do you you know i'm the youngest of four so but i'm the only medical person so how do how do i talk with my siblings and get on the same page and and it sounds simple but when you've gone through it it's not simple and you know that and so i think for me and what's sort of driving me i think at this next point in my career is taking taking this aspects of the families because families bring us so much joy they bring us so much love they can be such support um but they're complex beasts um and there's a thing the family systems theory is a great thing to go look up of and it gets you helps you break down different aspects of the family and then what can we do to help families help each other be healthier and as to what you said give each other hope for the future because i think definitely that's something that in rough times like we've had family is what you realize is what's going to get you through 
Cool. Thanks for that. Uh, have you noticed any shift in attitudes from your the, your your patients and their families towards the importance of being healthier? Yeah, I think, and actually, I think COVID has pointed that out some. You know, I think it has forced us to be um, families are busy, and so forcing us to be around each other, and then and then recognizing one of the biggest risk factors when it comes to COVID is actually having excess weight on the body. And so, I, I with you saying that, I hadn't really thought a lot about it, but I, I even with all the other stressors that people have to deal with, I think sometimes we, you know, as a parent, you know this, you ignore your own health, you sacrifice your own health. I think people are able to step back a little bit and say, hey, I want to do this for me, I want to do that for us. And what best predicts success is families wanting to do it together. What gets people um, living healthier lives is having someone to do it with. And in adults, we tend to think about a friend or a spouse, um, a group. For me, for me, running, it was always having this running partner. I've had the same running partner for eight years, and I never would have run that regularly without her. And I think families are a built-in support network with that. And I, and I think um, calling attention to that and, and telling people, how can I reach out to my spouse or my child or my parent and say, hey, I want to be healthier. I want you to be healthy. What can we do? And like you said, with health coaching, you got to get out of your own head sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think of the old Lyle Lovett song of I live in my own mind. Sometimes you just got to get out of your mind to talk about these things. And it's oftentimes shocking what you find yourself saying and doing. Yeah, I, and I love what you said about the, the the accountability partners too. And I'm seeing a lot more uh, moms and dads bringing their kids into say body pump class and that kind of stuff. So it's I think COVID for me the the the, the a, a thing of hope is that this has illuminated a lot more people's desire to live much healthier and to do the things they need to do to to get to that point. So I see like a boom ahead for um, health coaching and that kind of stuff. But also, you know, I struggle with how to scale that because, you know, one-on-one -on -one takes time, it takes bandwidth and it's, you know, you don't know how much impact you're making. And I, I want to make a huge impact. You know, I want to get people healthy all over the world and get them motivated and see everyone out running and eating well and growing food and all this stuff. So, uh, but I think I, I do, I do sense like a, a sea change in people's attitudes and, and our country needs it. Um, we're so blessed in the West to have, you know, caloric excess, <laughs> Yeah, you know, when some don't have enough and, and, and we're sitting here going, oh, I'm not going to eat that rice. It's too much carbs in that. And other countries are like, I need rice because I need calories. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the hard part is cutting through the noise out there. And, and I think I think that's a big role that healthcare has to play is, you know, the the marketing power of some of these companies is much stronger than what you and I have. And and I think I feel like healthcare. um we have ceded prevention to the for-profit industries and i and so i started med school in 1995 and i remember we had a guy speak to us from the cdc who said your generation of physicians will be the first that will truly focus on prevention and it turned out not to be true um and so i i think we do need more of that and i think we need to restructure our healthcare environment to focus on wellness as much as it does on illness. I think people are always scared that, oh, you're going to let everyone go. No, we need to focus on illness, but we also need to focus on wellness. And we need to take some of that back from the for-profit industry that's just wanting to sell you something and getting the good information out there and finding a way to deliver it and disseminate it in the right ways. And whether that's through 
expanded health coaching or using technology to do with that. We, you know, it's again something that we benefit from our partnership with Northwest AHAC is we've gotten much better over the years in making educational videos that are pertinent, timely. It's what we're hearing real time. Um, we can go do it cheaply that we can go do a video that's of high quality and provide it when people knew it. So we have a great YouTube channel. You can go to our YouTube, the Brenner Fit YouTube channel, and we have it organized there with recipes, health information, exercises, things like that. And again, it's nothing groundbreaking, but especially something in our area that's really pertinent to our patients here. And, and we update them. We do them all the time. And it's just trying to get that right information to the right people when they need it. And, and a mechanism they can do it to battle against all the misinformation that's out there. Yeah, and being consistent with that message too, and 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 like you said, bringing it kind of localized and personalized, uh, just in time and all that. Well, I really appreciate your time today, Doctor Skelton, and uh, I'll be working on getting that smoking jacket since you're my, you know. Um, I'm trying to think. Maybe we should cook something. We should do a video one for our, the, the my introduction to the the five timer club. Then so. Yeah, I, I'll take you up on that. We still have a sushi date at some point. Oh, that's so. right. We do. We're behind on that. We'll have to meet that new place out in Clemson. We're only like three years behind on that. But uh, well, it was great to see you. Thanks again. And check out the Brenner Fit YouTube channel that was just mentioned. Any other uh, websites or promotional things you want to plug before we sign off? Uh, we get our um, our Facebook page. We keep really active. And actually, this was a thing that um, came again. All, all the great the great things that we're doing now tend to grow from our relationship with Northwest AHEC, our Brenner Fit Academy for Families. And so that's a free virtual program for 12 weeks for any parent um, that has a concern about their child's weight. Um, you can find a sign up on our um, website, BrennerFit website, as well as our Facebook page. Um, and that's coming up, I think, again, in about two to three weeks, we're going to start that next series. And we do have some space in there. Um, we'll be doing it again in the summer if you can't participate this week. It's 12 um, weekly sessions. It's live virtual programs. It's absolutely wonderful. And pe people have had wonderful experiences with that. Fantastic. Well, thanks again. And... We'll see you on episode five of the Skeleton Show. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Andy. It was great talking with you. Likewise. Take care.